right? First and second Kings, first and second Samuel. Now the contents of the book, I want you to look at the chart. You have it there, or if you want to look up on the screen, and certainly you can see here that as you look at the first half of the book, the 40 years, notice the, the key words there, united kingdom, united. By the way, this is even with the church today that we're a part of, God's heart, his desire is that we, we would be in one accord, that we would be together and we would not have discord and division among us. And so notice that David is uh, succeeded in this time frame by his son Solomon. And so at this time, all the way through chapter, the end of chapter number 11, the kingdom is united. Now look at the second half. You go beyond the united kingdom and notice the word there, divided kingdom. All right, so what was once one, how many tribes of Israel are there? 12 tribes. And we're going to see that as we go through this study and even in the couple coming up after this. But notice now that Israel, of course, some of the situations that they're dealing with, and you see now a divided kingdom, and, and so it was united in this book for about 40 years, and then for 90 years you see the division, and again, there's just a lot of things that went along with that. Now, back in your notes, it says the book carries on the history of the Jewish nation. It shows the state of apostasy, and to apostatize means to fall away. And what are they falling away from? From the truth, falling away from God. And so it says here that it shows the state of apostasy of the spiritual seed within the nation in these times. And it also shows God's providential care of them during all the changes and the deviations in the state. So again, I, I see God's grace in, in most of these situations, how again, Israel turned their back on God, but yet notice again how God providentially, in spite of their sin, he was taking care of them during all these changes, during all these deviations. And by the way, God is good to us too, all the time. And he takes care of us even when we are not doing what he asked us to do. Now it says, look at this, above all, uh, the book of 1 Kings communicates to us, and this is very important later on, the true genealogy of the Messiah. And of course we see that it serves to confirm the genealogical account that is given in the New Testament in Matthew's gospel record. So that's kind of neat. You can look here, you can go to Matthew's record, and you can see further uh, vindication of that record, that genealogy of the Messiah. And that is very, very significant, especially for all who would know him as Savior and, of course, the Jewish people. Now, this is one of those books where in that whole section that is historical books, and so, again, many of these that we've already looked at and the ones in the days ahead will be uh, historical in nature. The subject of the book of 1 Kings is God's dealings with Israel through Solomon and then, of course, the kings of what is, would then be the divided kingdoms until the time of Elijah the prophet. So what we see when you look at 1 Kings, 2 Kings, there's two prophets. One of them is Elijah and then, of course, the one that came after him, which is Elisha, and so we see this goes until the time of Elijah the prophet. The purpose of the book of 1 Kings is to show the cause of the establishment and decline of the kingdom. Notice there the establishment of it, but also where it went. It did not go in the right direction. It went down. It also serves the book to teach us 
that our Solomon, if I could call it that way, which is Christ, that, that Christ will lead every one of us as believers in full enjoyment of his blessings. And, and the, 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 the key, just like for Israel, is if he is unhindered by a divided heart. And, you know, look, you, you cannot serve God and mammon. Many Christians today want to straddle the fence. Uh, they want God on their terms. Uh, many people were in church today. We were glad they were in church. But the reality is many times people don't dark, darken the doors of the, the church house unless it is Christmas or Easter. God is not pleased with that. And so we need to understand God wants to be in our lives at all times. And God is not interested in us having a divided heart. A simple little outline, four-part outline for the book of 1 Kings. It begins the first two chapters with David and his death. And, of course, the Bible talks about how David had grown very old by this time. Once David passes away, of course, notice number two, the dignity of Solomon's reign. And so for about uh, seven or eight chapters, we see Solomon's prayer for wisdom. And, of course, the, the Bible says get wisdom and get the principal thing. Uh, I love the book of Proverbs. You know, there's a great wisdom in that book. And so we see that he prays for wisdom. Notice right after that, the next three chapters uh, actually deal with the building of the temple. This was what David wanted to do. In David's heart, David had gathered all the materials. His heart was to build the house of God, but God would not let him do that because he had blood on his hands. And so that, that was passed to his son, Solomon, and the building of the temple. And then we see the fame of Solomon in a couple chapters, and then the shame and death of Solomon. And of course, Solomon had, you know, you think about all of his wives and concubines and all these things. Uh, Solomon was a man that, like his father, was a good man, but made a lot of mistakes, just like all of us. And But yet you see in this second section the dignity of Solomon's reign. And then number three, we see a, a major shift in chapter 12 to the division of the kingdom. What was once united under Saul and David and Solomon is now divided. And we see Two individuals, the folly and reign of Rehoboam, and then the rise and foolishness of Jeroboam. And so these two Boam boys uh, begin to, to do some things in chapter number 12 that leads uh, Israel away from God. And of course, the kingdom is then divided. And then the last section of the book uh, deals with chapter 13 to 22, the decline of the kingdom, shows some early kings as they begin to reign, the ministry of Elijah. Many of us enjoy those couple chapters there dealing with Elijah and of course how he had to deal with Ahab. And then the concluding events of Ahab's reign is how the book, this particular book, 1 Kings, comes to a conclusion. Now the scope of the book, it actually covers history of about 120 years in length. And it says here, from the close of David's reign to the death of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. And so we find here 120 years contained in 1 Kings. And of course, if you put 1st and 2nd together, you would have many more years. The writer is, it says here, 1 Kings contains an abstract of the history of Israel. And it's, it's compiled from much more than records. And of course, we find there's, a, there's even today. Now, we understand, hopefully you do by now, that the Bible, what we have in the Word of God, is inspired of God. This is not man's words. These are God's words. Now, there are some Jewish 
uh, 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 writers that have written uh, accurate accounts, historical accounts of what took place among the Israelites in their history. And those are, uh, they, they are antiquities that are very dear to the nation of Israel, even to this day. One of the well-known ones is Josephus, but there are others, and we see much of that. Now, the difference is, is that those were history accounts, many factual, but they were written by man. What you have in your hand is written from God's hand. And so that makes all the difference. It's inspired of God. So it says here that it is uncertain that when you think of the writer of 1 Kings by whom this compilation was made, many believe that it was probably Ezra. Most historians, most theologians believe it was probably Jeremiah. And again, I'm not going to argue with folks on that, but that is where I kind of stand myself. Now, three verses that of interest in 1 Kings. Notice chapter 11, verse 41, the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the books, the book of the acts of Solomon? The Bible says in chapter 14, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And then you also see in chapter 15, the rest of the acts of, uh, of Nadab, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So we see again, as you notice here, that there were, there were much more than just records. That, but again, we find that God has given us an actual factual account of some things that took place through these kings as the kingdom was divided. Now, when was this particular book written? Most likely between 560 and 540 B.C., Again, this is counting down to the time of Christ, but it, many believe this was when the first temple was still standing, and it was written somewhere in the land of Palestine, probably in Jerusalem. And so that is where we see, we believe this book to have been written, like a few others that we've already looked at. Now, if you look at the entire book, uh, there's one chapter that I think stands out, and you can look at it there. I've given you a lot of scripture verses but the reason is because of this word, ecumenicity, all right? Not an easy one to say five times. But when you think about this word here, uh, some, something that is ecumenical or ecumenicism, we have to understand as Bible-believing Christians that God has given his word and his word is truth. Now, here's the reality is, is that I run into a lot of people, listen to me, that are Christians. But a lot of people have different views on things. And it's not my job nor yours to stand around and argue with people, but it is our responsibility to share the truth with other people. Now, whether or not they want to accept it, that's their choice. But one thing's for sure, there are people who are uh, who would rather have things done other than what God has given us in his word. Is everybody with me so far? Everybody understand what I'm saying? Now, when you think of, of something that is ecumenical, okay, uh, today, uh, you know, you think about probably the greatest example in the Bible, if you know the book of Nehemiah, and we'll get there in, in just not too long, but Nehemiah was doing a great work for God. And the Bible says that there were some religious leaders of the day who, again, did not 
hold to the truth, uh, the words of God. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to halt the work of God. They wanted to stop the work of God. And Nehemiah, of course, the main project that Nehemiah was a part of was building or rebuilding the wall around the city of of Jerusalem. And so here you have these uh, religious leaders of the day, and they're trying to get Nehemiah to stop doing what God's given him to do and come down from the wall. And if you've ever read that book in the Bible, Nehemiah said, I cannot come down. In other words, I'm not going to stop doing what God's given me to do. But see, people that are you know, I, I remember years ago, I was, I, I was sitting listening to a conversation of a pastor who's been in heaven for many years. And uh, he was talking about it, and it was the first time a lot of the guys had ever heard this. But certainly, I hope that you understand or you, you realize, and, and again, I'm not down on other religions. I just pray for them. I want them to know the truth. But uh, Catholic people, and I was raised as a Catholic, there are certain things that the Catholic Church teaches that is not found in the Word of God. Uh, they believe in the sacraments, the seven sacraments. They believe that if you have those sacraments, if you've been sprinkled with water, that that is the same as salvation. They believe that if you, uh, have the, uh, if you take the host and at the Mass, that you are literally taking the body and blood of Jesus Christ They call that transubstantiation. They have the praying over the dead and so on. I could go through every one of them, but I'm going to tell you, folks, you do not find that in the Bible. And so so what what you need to understand is today there is an ecumenical spirit that is alive in religious circles, and here's what they want you to do. They want you to hold hands with each other, and by holding hands with them, what you're saying is, that I agree with, I have no issue with, I have no problem with what he believes or what she believes. And so the thing is, is that what is my guide? It's not that I'm right and they're wrong. It's that God's word is true and every man a liar. So we have to understand we are guided by the principles of the word of God. Now, I'm not going to be mean to anyone, but I'll tell you this, I cannot have a Catholic priest stand in this pulpit because he's going to send an uncertain sound. Something other than you find in the Word of God. Now this may be something that you've never, ever heard of before or you've never thought of it. But there are many religions. Religion will send a person to a Christless eternity. See, Jesus did not die for religion. He died for the souls of men and women. And so we have to understand, when you think about this matter of ecumenicism, it's nothing new. Matter of fact, you see it here in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings. Look what we see about it in chapter number 22, because what it is, is it's the mixing of diversities, all right? Uh, You have, for instance, in this chapter, chapter 22, You have Ahab, and then also you have Jehoshaphat. Now, if you know anything about these, was Ahab a good person or a bad person? Bad. Anybody ever met somebody named Ahab? (laughs) You know, it's like like somebody named Benedict Arnold, you know? And so you you have here Ahab that was an evil person, and you have Jehoshaphat that was a good person. 
So you have a mixing of diversities. So look at these, uh, as you, we go down this list, it just kind of paints, chapter 22, paints a tremendous picture of what this ecumenical spirit is really all about. Notice letter A, it was a union of believers and non-believers. Now, what does it say in the New Testament of our Bible? It says, be ye not yoked together, uh, be not unequally yoked together, and God says, I want you to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. So God doesn't want us to be unequally yoked together. I, I don't know if you've ever, I, I, I'm not a, I never was a farmer, but I know this, that if a farmer is going to plow, he needs two animals that are going to pull together. He doesn't want one animal that's strong and the other one that's weak because you're not going to have straight rows. You're going to be plowing in circles, all right? And so God says, look, you need to make sure. Now, that doesn't, listen to me, that doesn't mean that we should not love everyone because we should. God loved the world. But when we talk about the spirit of getting together, be careful. Some Christians today are way too much on TV and on the internet, listening to and reading things that were written by non-believers. Be careful. The Bible tells us about this union of believers and non-believers. Letter B, it involves a false sense of oneness. Chapter, uh, chapter 22, verse 4, uh, again, hey, look, you ever heard this in your day? Hey, listen, all roads lead to heaven. You ever heard that, something like that? All roads do not lead to heaven. There are some roads that lead straight to hell, and we've got to be careful. Jesus said, I am the way. See, if somebody has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, they are not going to heaven. Now, there's still time. You know, the thief on the cross was saved before he took his last breath. So there's a spirit here. Notice it involves a false sense of oneness. It, letter C, it followed the advice of a false prophet. Folks, look, I hope that you're just like those in Berea that, that search the scriptures daily, whether that those things were so. Look, don't take my word for it. Search the Bible. Look in the Word of God. Make sure that what you're hearing is from the pages of God's Word. Letter D, notice the spirit of ecumenicism attempted to muzzle the true servant of God. Verse number 13. Uh, and listen, I experienced that personally in ministry, where people wanted to silence the message of God or the messenger of God. Now, again, the only thing I try to preach or teach here at our church is what God's given to me. But I don't think that there ought to ever be a time when God's prophet or God's, God's spokesman or God's preacher should not be able to boldly declare the word of God. And yet we find here in chapter 22, they're trying to muzzle or silence the true servant of God in verse number 13. In verses 17 18, it involved the rejection of God's word. Then notice that we also see in verse 24, 27, it involved persecution of God's man. In verses 34 through 36, it ended in disaster for both parties. Notice that. Nobody won. It was disaster for both parties. And then letter H, and this is still something true for us today, it shows that light and darkness will not mix. Again, that goes right back to being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. God says, be careful about that. And when you think about that chapter, chapter 22, it's a key pivotal chapter because 
it deals with this mixing of diversities. The key verse in 1 Kings is chapter 11, verse 13. Howbeit, I will not rend away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to thy son for David's servants, my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. So God had made a promise, and, and it is true. Every promise God has ever made, he has always kept. God's not let one promise as his fall to the ground. And so God had promised that through David, through the tribe of Judah, that there would be a, a remnant. There would be, uh, of course, that would, his, the Messiah would be through that. And that's what this verse is speaking about. He says, I won't rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe for David, my servant's sake. And of course, really for the promise that he had made. The key word is the word royalty. Royalty. The key phrase is David, his father. 1 Kings 2.12, then sat Solomon upon the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. And of course, Solomon had a great father, and he sat upon the throne of David, his father. The key thought is the glory and division of the kingdom. And that's what we see here in the last part of this particular 1 Kings book. The spiritual thought for us is to set the king on his throne. And when I say on his throne, I'm talking about your heart. Make sure the Lord is on the throne of your heart. Give God his place in your life. And what is his place? It's first. That he ought to be preeminent in our lives. A couple of things I found that were unique about the book. The first one is the forerunner. And it's kind of an interesting concept. The hand of the Lord was, came upon Elijah the Bible records that Elijah girded up his loins and he ran ahead of Ahab and he ran to the entrance of Jezreel. And as he was doing this, what was he doing? He was acting as a runner for the king, a runner of the king, uh, one that represented the king to run ahead of the king, clearing the way for his chariot and announcing his arrival. Now this concept of the forerunner, the one to go ahead... We also see in Isaiah chapter 40, look at verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now that's speaking about who? John the Baptist, right? Now John the Baptist did not have a bulldozer or caterpillar. It's not talking about an actual highway, it's about preparing the hearts of the people. Now think about this, you, even in our worship services, tonight, this morning, music serves as a tool that God uses to prepare the hearts to receive the truth. So when you think about that, I mean, David in the Bible, I read last week, remember how Saul had a, 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 an evil spirit about him? Some of, you, some of you wives might want to learn this. You know, Saul got to the place where he just had this spirit that wasn't right, and so they got David, and David played for him on the harp, and it calmed him down. Maybe you can play a little music. I don't know what you're going to play it on, play a kazoo or whatever but help your husband out when he gets the way he does. But we find here that God says this forerunner is going to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, 
Go over to the New Testament, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 7. The Bible says, as it is written in the prophets. Notice that goes back to Isaiah and other places. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. Notice, and preached, saying, there cometh one, this is what John the Baptist says, one mightier than I after me, the latcheth of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. John knew his place. Remember what he said? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. John said, look, uh, God just gave me this ministry. By the way, John's ministry is... My ministry is the same as John's. It's to get out of the way and let God do his his work. And so we find here that John was preparing the way. And you know what's neat about it? When you study the Bible, here's what happens. When John the Baptist was shut up in prison, and then John was beheaded for his faith, that's when the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus began. Because at that point... Jesus was on the earth, but he was more obscure. He was kind of in the background a little bit more. But understand that the reason for that is because if Jesus would have started preaching while John was preaching, it would have caused some confusion. Remember, God is a God of order. So when John's ministry, now watch this, when Jesus Jesus was crucified and he ascended back up to the, the Father, As the second person of the Godhead went up, the third person of the Godhead came down, the Holy Spirit. See, God, that's the way God works. And God says, I'm going to send someone ahead of my son. Now, here's a great thought that God showed me many years ago. I never forgot this, and I want you to see it with me tonight as we think about the forerunner. Look at this verse, Hebrews 6.20. Whither the forerunner is for us entered. What's those next two words? Even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know what that means? That Bible, if you go back to those verses right before that, that means that Jesus became our forerunner. When Jesus died on the cross, he took God's blood and he went before us to atone for our sins so that we can have eternal life. What a wonderful thought here that we see in the book of First Kings about the forerunner. And then, of course, we see that all throughout the scriptures, even in the New Testament. Another thing I found unique was Elisha in this book, that his was a ministry of blessing. It was a ministry of healing. And from the life of Elijah and his ministry, we can learn some beautiful lessons Lessons on Christian living and Christian service. And when Elijah, you know the story, he cast his mantle upon him. The Bible says he knew that it was God's call on his life to follow him as a servant. And perhaps, listen to this, even maybe to die with him. And so we find here that Elijah understood that. And as that happened in his life, there was no time for him to think Uh, The decision had to be made, and it had to be made in a moment. See, a lot of times what we want to do is we want to sit around and deliberate about, you know, God's dealing with us about something. And here's what we're hoping is, is that if we just procrastinate long enough, God will forget. But the gifts of calling of God are without repentance, folks. 
Do you know some of the most miserable people I've met in my life since I entered the ministry are people that God was calling them to do something for him and they never answered the call and they knew they should have. There may be somebody in this auditorium tonight or somebody listening that somewhere along the way God was calling you. Can I tell you it's never too late. It's never too late. We, we think, you know, I remember the, 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 day, the day that God called me to preach was just three days ago. It was on April Fool's Day. And I thought, to my, I thought Goddard, that's a pretty good joke, you know. And then I realized God wasn't joking. And I'll tell you to this day, I'm glad I've never regretted following and answering God's call. I think about the disciples, how Jesus came in his earthly ministry, and just like Elijah responded to the call of God on his life, the Bible says, Jesus said unto them in Matthew 4, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And notice these words, and straightway. That means right away. They didn't deliberate. They didn't waste time. They didn't procrastinate. They straightway left their nets, and they followed him. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes we see those words and we think, well, you know, it wasn't that big a deal because they left their nets. I mean, certainly if things didn't work out, they could just get some new nets. You're missing it. They walked away from their livelihood. They walked away from their business. They walked away from everything they knew was their life. Remember the Bible says, that if we are in Christ, old things are passed away, finish the rest of it with me, and all things are become new. So I see here how God tells them that he wants them to straightway follow him, follow him, and he'll make them fishers of men. Now, when you go to 1 Kings, look at chapter 19, verse 21. The Bible says he returned, he returned back from him, and he took a yoke of oxen, and he slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now, if you know the story here of what Elisha was doing, this was, this was his livelihood. This is what he used every day to plow the fields and to, to, to earn a living, not only for him, but for his family. And the Bible says he took uh, the instruments that he used and he took the animals that would pull the plow and the Bible says he slew them, he boiled them, in the, in, 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 and gave unto the people, and they did eat. And he rose and went after Elijah. What was he doing? By his actions, he was showing, listen to this, to everyone that he was no more to do his former life. In other words, there was no plan B, there was no going back. God says, if we put our hand to the plow... We should never look back. Remember how silly it was that uh, the nation of Israel left Egypt's land? Remember how they were treated in Egypt? They were slaves. They had taskmasters. They were treated poorly. They get away from Egypt's land, and God begins to try to teach them to be dependent on him. So guess what? They're without food. They're without water. So what do they do? Like many of us, they start complaining and murmuring and griping. You know, God's been good to us. 
Sometimes when things happen in our lives, it's just God testing us to see if we have faith in him. And how foolish they were, they said, and I'll paraphrase, they kind of said something like this, boy, we had it so good when we were in Egypt's land, maybe we ought to just go back. Listen, for the nation of Israel, Egypt was not the good old days. And if you and I would be honest and you'd look back at your life before Christ, it wasn't the good old days either. Everything is better with Jesus in your life. You think about a day like today, the resurrection, it makes life worth living. And so we find here that there were some wonderful things. Of course, there's many others, the things that would be unique in the book. Uh, our theme, for those of you that are visiting, uh, we, of course, our, our theme this year is magnify. We're trying to magnify the Lord in every area of our lives. And so I look for ways that maybe Christ is magnified in each one of these books of the Bible. And in this particular one, I see him as Solomon, the Prince of Peace. And of course, his reign, the reign of Solomon, helps us to complete even the picture, our picture of Christ as our King. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 22, 9, Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. Now, remember, when, it, when Solomon was on the throne, it was a united kingdom. It wasn't a divided kingdom. And the Bible says here that when he is on the throne, that he would have peace and quietness in his days. Now, Solomon's peaceable kingdom was really just the result of the victories that his father David had obtained. He was the benefactor of all that his father had done ahead of him. And so Christ is magnified as the Prince of Peace. And of course, that is what he is in our lives. That's the only peace that this world will ever know is Jesus. Because human nature is always going to be fighting against each other. But he is the Prince of Peace. Another thing I see as he is magnified in the book of 1 Kings is him as the temple. And remember earlier we mentioned that Solomon was the one that would build the temple. So the glory of Solomon's reign was the building of the temple. I really believe with all my heart that according to the Bible, Solomon had been raised up specifically for this purpose, to build the temple of God. First Chronicles 28, verse 6, he said unto me, Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house, for the sanctuary be strong and do it. So again, the temple... And we understand when you get in the New Testament, what does the Bible say? It says that our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. God lives within us. And we see a beautiful picture here of the temple, the glory of the temple. And then how about this one? Kind of interesting. The Queen of Sheba. Remember how we see this, this lady, this individual, she makes a visit. I, I really believe that the visit of the Queen of Sheba is a beautiful picture of a soul coming to the Savior. And as the soul comes to the Savior, that soul will find beautiful, full satisfaction in the Lord. Well, when Queen of Sheba came to Solomon, uh, remember the, the statement, the half has not been told. And, and so it's a wonderful thought here how that it, uh, it, it's a great picture, a beautiful picture of someone coming to the Savior, finding satisfaction in him. Now, interesting verse here in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12 
Verse 42, the queen of the south, this is the queen of Sheba, shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And that was referencing Jesus. Uh, listen, Solomon might have been great, but Jesus is greater. And this is what we see. Now, when you look at the book, then naturally the, the, the emphasis in the second half of the book gets away from the united kingdom. Notice in your notes there, to the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. If you look in your notes there or up on the screen, you have a map of the divided kingdoms. Now, remember, God had given them the land, and this is what he had promised to the tribes of Israel. But if you notice now, because of sin and because of man wanting his way, you see a division now. Notice the south is Judah, and the north is referred to as Israel. So throughout their history in the promised land, the children of Israel, they struggled with conflict among the tribes of Israel. The disunity went all the way back to the patriarch Jacob, who presided over a house that was divided. The sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel had their share of contention. I'm just giving you a little rundown here just for you. It's not in your notes, but I'm just trying to get you familiar why this ended up as a divided kingdom. The sons of Rachel and the sons of Leah had their share of contention in the Bible in Jacob's lifetime. The hostility among the half-brothers continued in the time of Judges. Benjamin, one of Rachel's tribes, took up arms. We looked at this a couple weeks ago against the other tribes. Benjamin did. Israel's first king, who was Saul, was, was of the tribe of Benjamin. When David was crowned king, David was from the tribe of Judah, which is one of Leah's tribes. And remember, the Benjamites actually rebelled against that. After there was a long war, David, King David, succeeded in uniting all 12 tribes. That is significant. David succeeded. He united all 12 tribes together. Now, even though he had united them together, there was a frailty among them. In this union, it was not solid. And so that frailty was exposed when, remember, when David's son Absalom rebelled against him. And we find that Absalom begins to do, he promotes himself as the new king. He drew many of the Israelites away from their allegiance to his father, David. The reign of David's son Solomon, we looked at here in this book, uh, Solomon's reign, there, there was more unrest when one of the king's servants, we already mentioned his name, Jeroboam, rebelled. Jeroboam was told by the prophet Ahijah that God was going to give him authority over 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. However, God promised that David's dynasty, and God again is going to keep his word, but he promised that through David it would continue, only it would be over a much smaller kingdom for the sake of God's covenant with David and for the sake of Jerusalem, God's chosen city. Now, after the death of Solomon, this is still a part of this book, his son Rehoboam was set to become the next king. Jeroboam led a group of people to confront Rehoboam with a demand for a lighter tax burden. When Rehoboam refused the demand, here it is, 10 of the tribes rejected Rehoboam. And notice as they did that, they were rejecting David's dynasty. So when you look at this map, 
Only Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, remained loyal to King Rehoboam. So in your notes, the northern kingdom is called Israel. Sometimes you'll see as you read the scriptures, it's not called Israel, it's called Ephraim. Same thing, synonymous term. So you have Israel, which is the northern kingdom in the scriptures, and then the southern kingdom is Judah. Now, uh, you also have, and we have, it, we have it on the slides, but you probably have this map. Yours is probably not as nice as mine. Mine's in color, but do you have, do you have this? And so uh, he could pop that up there. Yeah, he's got it up there, and you might not be able to see it, but you can look at the one you have. I'm not going to go through it all, but I want you to look at just how it's laid out. Look at the top. Notice it says, kings of Judah and Israel. And these three, Saul, David, and Solomon, those are the three that had a united kingdom, the, the, the 12 tribes. Notice the dates. But then when you get below that, there's a, a line straight down the page. On the left side, you have Judah and Benjamin. On the right side, you have the 10 northern tribes, which would be Israel. And then you see the names of all the kings. You also can see the years that they reigned, how many years that they were on the throne, and what their character was. And then it's interesting, you also see the prophets. So when you're reading your Bible, remember the Bible, the way the canon of scriptures is put together, it's not necessarily in chronological order. Okay? So one thing that if you notice, look at the 10 northern tribes. You see the 19 kings. What do you notice about the character of the kings of the 10 northern tribes? Any good ones there at all? No. Now look over in the Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes, and notice here that you do see a few that the, it actually says here that they were good kings. Now the, the, the reality is some of these were good and, and bad. But nonetheless, you can see, and this might help you as, as you as you look through this. Now, I'm going to point out one more thing before I move on. And you can study this later. Keep this handy when you're reading your Bible or whatever. Look at the bottom of both columns. The bottom of the column of Judah. Notice it says, destruction of Jerusalem, 586 B.C. And what's the name of the captivity? Babylonian captivity. Look underneath of the next column, and you see the year 722 B.C., the fall of Israel, and what captivity? Now, you remember how I said earlier that both tribes lost? They were both losers? This right here shows you what I was meaning by that, because the entire 12 tribes eventually went into captivity. Now, the reason for that is because of sin. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And so this is something that is, should stand out in our minds and hearts, especially as Christians today, as believers, as Americans, that, listen, America, if we're not careful, we're heading down the same path that Israel went down many, many years ago. And we need to be careful about what we are doing today we have been given much in the area of Scripture and truth, and we must learn from what has happened to those that have gone on before us. Now, back in your notes as we finish this up, I want you to notice here, from a divine viewpoint, 
the division was a judgment on not keeping God's commands, specifically the commands prohibiting idolatry. If you study the the number one thing that Israel struggled with, listen to me, it was idolatry. Now, maybe back in that day, they had more graven images and things that they would bow down to and, you know, Baal and all those types of things. And maybe, maybe in your home, maybe in your life, you don't have some little, some little statue or something that you bow down to. But we have our own idols. Because remember, anything that comes between us and God is an idol. And if Israel fell and went into captivity because of idolatry, there's a great lesson that we need to learn from that. Is that we need to make sure that God is first in our lives and we're putting no, no other God before him. And so that's the divine viewpoint. Now look at the next line here. From a human viewpoint, the division of the kingdom was the result of tribal discord. The brethren could not get along. And political unrest. See, the principle is this, that sin brings division. Right? Look what James said. From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lust that war in your members? Folks, listen. From the days that God created man, there's been a constant fighting among mankind. And remember, the only peace that man will ever know is when they have Jesus in their heart because he's the Prince of Peace. Now, when you think about this, where we are right now as we conclude tonight, it sounds like a pretty sad picture. Now, the good thing is it's not the end of the story, especially as we read the scriptures and we understand what God's going to do in the days ahead. The good news is that God in his mercy has promised that he would reunite the northern and southern kingdoms. This is God's promise. Look what Isaiah said. I don't know if you've ever seen these verses. Isaiah 11, verses 12 and 13. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. See, all of that is going to be made possible because God has promised that he would reunite the northern and the southern kingdoms. Now, all of this, bottom line is this, that when the king of kings, the prince of peace, Jesus Christ, when he reigns in his millennial kingdom, Here's what's going to happen is all hostility, all jealousy, all conflict among the tribes will be put to rest. The Lord will bring all things to pass. And again, when you look at this, we'll look at the book of 2 Kings next Sunday. And uh, there's, uh, I think, 25 chapters in 2 Kings. Make sure if you're doing your reading, try to stay up with it. And I know there's been a few times I've fallen a little bit behind, but it's helped me as I've been going through here, just to, just to kind of familiarize myself with some of these individuals. And of course, there's a lot of kings, a lot of names, 